If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. We are in the fifth message in our series entitled, Grow Up. So what we've been looking at over the last four weeks is the very first week we talked about what it means to be a member of the body. And then in week two, we talked about why as a church we serve and how we go about serving And in the third week, we talked about the importance of the Word of God and how it should steer everything that we do as a church. And then last week, we looked at the gospel. And we clearly defined what it is and what it means for us in this body. And now today, we're going to be looking at spiritual maturity. Because there's something going on here as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and it's disturbing to him. So he actually writes a little bit of a harsh rebuke to the church at Corinth in our passage today because they were acting in a way that was not only not in step with the gospel, but was actually very immature. So we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Four things that Paul points out to us today that I want to share with you. How fitting, during this time of transition, as we planned out this sermon series, having no idea that today would be the beginning of another time of transition for our church, how fitting that God orchestrated it, that we would have this passage together to study and to reflect on and to be obedient to. The first thing that we see in this passage that Paul is telling us is that the gospel is enough. It is enough for everything that we do. Now, what was going on in the church at Corinth is people were picking sides. Some people liked Paul. Others liked Apollos. And there was strife and jealousy in the body over these different teachers. And so Paul is addressing them and he's saying, I am not able to address you as spiritual. Now, he's writing to believers. So Paul is not saying you guys are not believers because of the way you're acting. But he's saying the way you are acting is not the way that a follower of Christ should behave. He said, you're acting according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. Now, all of us in this room who are believers in Christ, we are all guilty of serving the flesh at times instead of serving the Spirit. And this is what we see in the church at Corinth. So many people wanting Paul, others wanting Apollos, others wanting preferences and special treatment. And Paul says all that ultimately matters at the end of the day is that the gospel is proclaimed. 
And Paul calls them infants in Christ. Now, typically, when Paul uses the term for infant, it is a term of endearment, like a father and a child. But the word that he uses in this passage for infant is different. And it carries with it a negative connotation. Basically, what Paul is telling the church at Corinth is that you're being a bunch of babies. And he's saying it in a way that probably struck an uncomfortable chord in many of them. You see, what was happening in Corinth is that these believers thought that they grasped the gospel completely. And that they were ready to go on to greater truth and greater knowledge. As if somehow we have completely understood everything that Jesus tells us in the gospel. And we are ready for something else. And it's a reminder to us that we never completely understand the gospel. We have never arrived in our understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We'll never get it completely in this life. It is a daily rediscovery. It is a daily humbling ourselves, looking to the cross and saying, Jesus, show me what this means for me. It is not a one-time prayer. It is something that we should do as believers of Christ every single day. These Corinthian believers wanted solid food. They were ready to progress onto something bigger and greater. But Paul says, you can't move on to the solid food because you don't understand the basics of the gospel. The gospel is simple. It is both milk and solid food. And it sustains us. And Paul is telling this church, at the end of the day, no matter who is teaching, the gospel is what matters. Keep it supreme in your life. And then he goes on to tell them that ultimately Jesus is our teacher. Now this is very, very fitting for us today in a time of transition. That Pastor David is not the ultimate authority. I am not the ultimate authority. Andrew, Bob, Trey, our interim pastor that's going to begin next month, we are not the ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And when we pick and choose when we want to come to church, based on who is standing right here, we are acting as immature Christians. Because the church of Jesus Christ is not about the person who stands up here. That is only a small portion of what the church is. You see, when we pick and choose who we want to follow, we are actually contributing to a consumer mentality that is already rampant in the church in America. I'm going to go to this church, and once it stops meeting my needs, I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't like the style of that individual, so I'm going to leave and go over here. And that is not what Paul is teaching in this passage. He is telling them, whether you like Paul, whether you like Apollos, Jesus is the head of the church. Now, every preacher is not the best preacher in the world. Preachers have different gifts. Some pastors are really gifted at proclaiming the word of God. Other pastors are gifted in leading a congregation. Other pastors are gifted at pastoral care and shepherding the flock. And every once in a while, you get one who can do all three really well. But what happens at First Baptist New Orleans if the next pastor here is not as good as Pastor David? 
That doesn't mean we flee. I can remember an experience in my own life. Growing up in a church that had problems, just like all churches. We had a staff member, when I was a child, commit suicide. We had staff members have affairs with each other. And I can remember my parents sitting me down and my sister and saying, look, I know this is a difficult time, but we know that God has called us to this church. And as long as the gospel is proclaimed, we will stay in this church. And that example that my mother and father gave me is the example I want to set for my own children. Remember that we as adults, the decisions that we make in the church affect the next generation. You do not want to leave a legacy of faith for your children and your grandchildren that sees you hopping around from place to place every time things get difficult. As long as the gospel is proclaimed, and as long as you have been called to this body, you stay. Whether it's Paul, Apollos, David, Taylor, Trey, Andrew, Bob, whoever it might be. If God has called you here and you truly believe that Jesus is the ultimate teacher, you stay faithful to the calling that God has laid on your life. And then Paul reminds them, ultimately, at the end of the day, God is the one who provides the growth. Now, he's using a farming illustration. Paul planted the church in Corinth, and he was there about 18 months. And we know this because Acts 18 actually gives us an itinerary of Paul's travels, and he stayed at the church in Corinth for 18 months, and then he moved on to another location. So he planted that church, but somebody came behind him to water it. And that was Apollos. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you can identify with this. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody on the mission field and they pray to receive Christ. But you know that in a matter of days, you were going home. But there's a pastor there who is coming behind you to provide spiritual formation to that individual. So Paul planted, Apollos watered. God provides the growth And ultimately, the church of Jesus Christ is God's field. Now, this should be reassuring to you for a number of reasons. But number one, once you realize that you are the one who is not responsible for somebody's growth in Christ, it kind of takes the pressure off of you a little bit. You can breathe easy. Because at the end of the day, it is the Spirit of God moving in that individual's life that causes spiritual growth to happen. But number two, it should also humble you. Even if you have the privilege of walking alongside of somebody, discipling them, growing them up in the faith, you should always remember that it is God who is providing the growth. It's not your small group teacher. It's not the preacher up on stage. It's not your favorite preacher that you listen to on the radio or watch on TV who is the one growing your faith. It is God who is growing your faith. And he is using those men and women merely as instruments to grow you in your walk with Christ. The church of Jesus Christ must remain committed to believing that ultimately God is the one who orchestrates everything together for the growth of the people in the body. It doesn't matter how fancy the buildings are, how polished 
your programs are, how eloquent the speaker is from the stage, if God is not involved in the growth of the church, the church will not grow. And numerical growth doesn't always equal spiritual growth. We could be busting at the seams in this room right now, but if the Spirit of God is not involved in that, then we are not raising up mature Christians, as Paul talks about here. Now, that doesn't mean that we ever are content or satisfied with the amount of people in the room, but we want to make sure that we understand that ultimately the Spirit of God working in the hearts of individuals is what counts. It's the spiritual maturity of the people sitting in the room that detects whether or not the church is ultimately healthy. And Paul is reminding these believers here, God is the one who provides the growth. It is not me. It is not Apollos. Even as intelligent, as eloquent as Apollos and Paul were in their writing and their speaking, the reason the church at Corinth grew was because a movement of God happened among those people. They were merely instruments of that happening. And then we see that ultimately, we as a church have to remember who the owner of the building is. In verse 9, three times, Paul says, this is God's doing. This is God's doing. This is God's doing. He wraps up this whole passage by reminding and teaching these Corinthian believers that ultimately, God is the owner of the field. When you and I made decisions to follow after Jesus, we submitted to his authority. And we are no longer in control of our field. We have given up control to the one who leads us every single day. The best thing that you as a believer of Jesus Christ can do this morning for this church is remember who the owner of the building is. Just because you grew up here doesn't mean it's your church. Just because you serve on a committee doesn't mean it's your church. Just because you have a strong opinion doesn't mean it's your church. It is the church of Jesus Christ, and we submit to his leadership as the head of the church moving forward. The success or the failure of this body of believers in this room will not rise or fall with whoever the next leader is. It will rise and fall based on the ability of you in the room submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Remembering that God is the owner of the building. We are not. I can remember 10 years ago when I moved here. Like most arrogant, know-it-all seminary students, I thought, no offense, I graduated from seminary, so I can say that. Um, I thought I was going to be here about 18 months and move on to bigger and better things. Right? That's how so many of us come in to this city. And then we stayed, and God planted us here, and he allowed us to be a part of so many awesome privileges. We started coaching sports in the Upper Ninth Ward in 2011, and we coached football and baseball and basketball, and we were terrible in every single sport, and that was a reality check for me. I really realized for the first time how difficult it is to coach 
because I couldn't motivate my guys to do anything right. And we had one little boy who really had a bad temper, really bad. So bad that when he would have his fits of rage and anger, there was nothing we could do to control him. We literally would have to pick him up, sometimes throw him over our shoulders, put him into our vehicle, and take him home to his mom so she could deal with him. But, you know, we stayed in touch with that eight-year-old boy. And one day, a few years down the road, he prayed to receive Christ. And Jesus has transformed his heart. And he's following with Jesus today. And I know every one of you in this room have similar stories of people that you did not give up on in this city. That you cared for, that you prayed for, that you encouraged. And you saw the Spirit of God work in their life and transform them. And here's what I learned about the city of New Orleans in my 10 years The city of New Orleans loves you to the extent that you love it first. The city will reward you to the extent that you fully invest in the people that are in it. That you don't view this place as some temporary stop on your way to your next destination. But rather, the Spirit of God will use you to make a difference in the lives of people. And this church will continue to do that. For many, many, many years, if we remember who the owner of the building is. There is a professor, a missiology professor. His name's Ray Bakke. And he talked about in one of his books, he focuses on the gospel and how to do the gospel ministries in urban settings. And in one of his books, he talks about the synoptic gospels. That's just a fancy word for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as we know, if you've read those gospel accounts, they're all similar for the most part in their chronology, but they have different emphases. And they come at the story from a slightly different perspective. But he actually said something similar is happening in the Old Testament in the stories of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now we know that all three of these books deal with the exilic period of the Israelites, okay? And in the book of Ezra, you have a priest who comes to get the people's hearts right. He disciples them, and he makes sure they understand the word of God, and he motivates them to confess their sin. And then in Nehemiah, you have a lay leader who feels compelled by God to go back to Jerusalem and build up the wall of the city, because in that day, if you don't have walls, you have no protection. So he focused on infrastructure and making the city of Jerusalem a prosperous and peaceful place once again. And then you have the story of Esther, where a Jewish woman becomes queen and leverages her authority for the people of God and saves them from disaster. And what Baki says is that doing ministry in the city is very similar to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Because the church of Jesus Christ has to be like Esther. It has to focus on discipleship and evangelism and making sure everyone is following after the word of God. But you also need it to be a Nehemiah church. A church that is focused on the welfare of the city and building up the people that live within it. Making it prosperous. But then you also need it to be an Esther church. Where every single person who is in the community should leverage their influence where God has placed them. And what he says is, 
the church of Jesus Christ in the city, will be most effective when it merges all three of those views together, Ezra Church, Nehemiah Church, and Esther Church. First Baptist New Orleans will be effective if we do that same thing. If we continue to do well in evangelizing people and discipling people, if we continue to be like Nehemiah and go into the city and build up the walls and make this place a safer place for people to live, infrastructure, focusing on what makes everybody in the city better, regardless of whether or not they are believers in Jesus. But then we also have to be an Esther church, understanding that every one of you that have a job in the marketplace should be leveraging your influence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, That is what the church in the city should do. Paul is not happy with the church at Corinth here. Now, I'm happy with you, just so you know. I'm not upset. I'm not angry. I'm happy. But this passage today is a reminder to all of us that at the end of the day, whoever stands up here is a mere instrument that God is using to move his church forward. And so we submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ, confessing together as a body that it is his church. And we trust that he knows that the best and brightest days of this church will be ahead. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reminder, this warning that Paul gives us. And we submit to your leadership right now. Remind us daily that this is your church. That you are the head. And we will follow you wherever you take us. God, we love you. Continue to use us in the workplace to love our coworkers in our neighborhoods to love our neighbors, with our family members to love and proclaim the gospel to them. Help us to be obedient to your leadership and to trust that you know what is best. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.